On page 742, you will find Isaiah chapter 66. And you probably never thought we'd get there. We are there. I will warn you, there is one more sermon on Isaiah. We're going to finish, but we're not. And it's the prerogative of the preacher who spent so long in it to do so next week. 742. I remind you once more that the target audience uh, for the last 26 chapters that we've studied, beginning in chapter 40 through chapter 65 and now including 66, 27 chapters in all, the target audience is the remnant whom the Lord has chosen who will be returning to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity. And the purpose of these chapters, beginning in chapter 40, is to encourage these returning captives by reminding them of all that the Lord has done, is doing, and will do for their good and salvation. The restoration from captivity becomes then a great and wonderful picture of the salvation that the Lord himself will accomplish through his servant, we know him as the suffering servant of Isaiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, and is so true of much of what we have seen prophetically in the Old Testament, that the temporal things, the temporal experiences of God's people speak powerfully of a far greater and eternal truth as they find their fulfillment and consummation in Christ, in his church, in his kingdom. And so this morning, we need to ask ourselves as we come to this final chapter, what is it that the people need to know? What do they need to remember as they prepare to come back to the earthly city of Jerusalem, where they will begin their lives again as God's people in the midst of the surrounding nations? As I see it, and as I'm approaching this final chapter, much of what we see here in chapter 66 is sort of a summary or a compilation of all the great themes that the previous 26 uh, and total of 27 chapters of Isaiah have spoken about. And, and yes, I would say even the entire book with a strong, a very strong and, and very unique to Isaiah, a prophetic appeal, thus says the Lord, verse 1 of chapter 66. So common again throughout Isaiah, he ends with the Lord alone being the speaker. It's only the Lord speaking in these verses through Isaiah the prophet to this returning people, reminding them of these essential truths and reminding us as we conclude officially at least our study of Isaiah this morning. And so it is 24 verses, not too long, but going to ask that you would stand as we hear God's word, as we give our attention to it. Pay close attention to the imagery, the beautiful imagery here of what the Lord is teaching his people. This is God's word. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All of these things my hand has made, and so all of these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in heart or spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. 
He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. And he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them, and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes, and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, the sound of, from the trumpet, the sound of the Lord, rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem." You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all of your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, 
All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is like the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field, the grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, humble us. May we be those who indeed are humble and contrite in spirit and those who tremble at your word. Grant it by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This is a lengthy chapter. I've divided it really into three sections. I think that will be borne out pretty clearly as I begin the study with you this morning. And I think it's a right way to look at this chapter as we conclude in a formal way, at least, our study of the book of Isaiah. The first of three sections, well, here are the three, and I'll tell you what they are in advance, and then we'll look at them. The first is the heart of biblical worship. This is uh, similar to a message uh, in previous times, but this is the heart of biblical worship in verses 1 through 6. Secondly, the growth of God's people in verses 7 through the first part of verse 14. And then the glory of God that fills the earth in verses 14b through verse 24. Again, I think it's helpful to see it this way, and I hope you will agree as we go through our study this morning. The heart of biblical worship, verses 1 through 6. You remember in our study of Isaiah that this is the great indictment of the Lord against his people. It remained the great indictment of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry as he labored among the Pharisees, as he preached the gospel in Matthew 15, 8, as the Pharisees had their traditions which allowed them in their own minds to disobey God's law with respect to the care of their parents. Uh, this is the pronouncement that Jesus made against them in Matthew 15, 8. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That is a quotation, of course, from the book of Isaiah. It's part of the great theme of the book of Isaiah, that the people were guilty of heartless worship. These were spoken in chapter 29 of Isaiah, and they themselves, those words echo the very beginning of the prophecy where the Lord pronounces his disdain for the, uh, all the offerings that the people were bringing him. What to me, the Lord says, is the multitude of your sacrifices. I've had enough, he says, of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. All of your practices, he goes on to say, is a great burden to me, and I grow weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, he says, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. Here was the great problem to the, of the people to whom Isaiah was commissioned and called to preach the good news. Their religion consisted of only that which was external. There was no obedience from the heart, only an obedience to the outward demands of God that he had given to them in his law. The heart was never engaged as they came before the Lord. And so we see this as he concludes his prophecy, this repetition of one of these great themes that we find in Isaiah. If you look with me, we're going to get a little bit backwards. We're going to look at verses 3 through 6 first. You can see it there, the, the very clear expression the Lord is, is making there. Their external worship was repulsive to him. Their hearts were never engaged. And so all that he commands, the slaughtering of an ox in verse 3, the sacrifice of a lamb, the presentation of a grain offering, and the making of an offering of incense, all of that was commanded by the Lord. And yet as this people did it, it became as one who kills a man or breaks a dog's neck or offers pig's blood or blesses an idol. These are all images of what is abhorrent to the Lord according to his word. This is what their worship had become because it was devoid of a heart. It was devoid of a heart engaged in the proper worship of God. So this is how God sees their worship. And I would say how he continues to see the worship of all of those who approach him, not from the heart, but merely in an external way. It remains a danger for all of us today as we gather week after week in worship before the Lord. This is how the Lord sees it. He not only sees it this way, according to these verses, he judges it. And he judges it rather harshly. These are terrifying words. These have chosen, verse 4, these have cho or verse 3, these have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. That gives you a sense of where their heart really is. They take delight in doing what the Lord is displeased by. So I will then choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen. But they continued to do, time after time after time, what was evil in his sight, and to do those things in which he did not delight. This is a picture, again, of what God sees when worship is offered to him, not from the heart, but merely external, according to those external commands. His judgment falls upon them. I think this is a picture of the apostate people of Isaiah's day and those who would remain in Babylon, separated from the Lord. It remains a picture of the apostate church today who leave the Lord and do what is pleasing in their own eyes rather than live in obedience to the Lord and what he delights in. This has implications, consequences. Verse 5 tells us, as he speaks now to those who do tremble at his word, which we'll look at in a moment, he says to the faithful in verse 5 that your brothers who hate you and who cast you out, it means cast them out of the presence of the Lord, persecute them and continue to, uh, in their anger, make war against them. 
that they have said, let the glory, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. This is a mocking hypocrisy on their part, a desire to see the glory of God and the glory of his name, to have his name glorified through these people that they themselves are casting out from the midst of them. It's a, it's a mocking hypocrisy. And this is what happens all of the time as the wicked uh, fight against and push against the righteous and push them out. You remember the prophet Habakkuk in his prophecy. This is one of his great concerns. How is it, Lord, that you will look down where righteousness is, is pressed down or stepped upon in the streets and, and stepped over in the streets where there is no justice, where people are living this way and the righteous are persecuted? And the Lord, of course, pours his judgment upon them for those things. I remember as an illustration that stands in the forefront of my mind, as I completed seminary, I was in the church where my wife and I met, which was a very conservative PCUSA church. I think I've told this story before, but it's helpful to understand what uh, Isaiah or the Lord is saying in verse 5. As I graduated, I was good friends with the minister there, that church, who was also very conservative. And he persuaded me to at least pursue ministry in the PCUSA. Now, the PCUSA had already, by that time, this would be 1988, had already sort of left the faith, if you will. But he was faithful, and others within the denomination were trying to bring the denomination back. And so he encouraged me to call the candidates committee chairman and I made that call. I remember sitting in the office I had in that church and uh, barely getting through the ordinary pleasantries of introductions. I was asked what my position was on the ordination of women to the office of elder or pastor. I told him, of course, what my position was according to the scriptures. And without another question, he said these words, and I'll never forget them. He said, when you come to the floor for your exam, I will make sure that you fail. You are not welcome in this denomination. Now, I suppose if I had said, I don't really believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he might have said welcome, because that's where they were. That's where they were as a denomination. But because my view did not fit with theirs, they acted as it says here in verse five, those who hate us, and they put us out and they would not allow us to serve in that way, but said, let's let the Lord be glorified through you as we show you the door. Verse 6 ends all of this with, I think, a reference, as some see it, as the sound of an uproar from the city. This is the Lord coming in judgment, literally, to the temple. And this many commentators, and I think there's some reason for this, many commentators see verse 6 really fulfilled where Jesus comes to the temple in his earthly ministry, two times at least, according to the Gospels. And he cleanses the temple of the money changers, and he demands that it would be replaced or restored to being a house of prayer for all the peoples, for all the nations. This is what I think verse 6 sort of prefigures here, as the Lord judges his people for their blatant hypocrisy and their heartless worship. Well, that leads us to the question, what is then true worship, what does it look like? That's really in verses 1 and 2. And I think in a very quick and summary way, worship, true worship, has these two aspects to it, at the very least, at least according to Isaiah. 
The first you see in verse 1, and that is a recognition of who God is. Notice Isaiah focuses upon what theologians call his immensity or uh, his largeness, if you will, not in a physical sense, but the fact that God fills all things. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Who can sort of contain me in a house? Who can build a house that would contain the immensity of our God? He is awesome and great in his immensity. He fills all things. And as such, that means, and he declares it here, he is the creator of these things. How can what God has created be used to contain him in any way? Solomon's prayer on the day in which the temple was dedicated referenced how it is that God can be contained, who fills the heavens and the earth into a building or a house, a place of his rest. And so we see the recognition we need to have as we approach God. And I hope this is true for you, that every week as you come into the sanctuary and you hear me say 10 minutes before we start, prepare your hearts. What do I mean by that? I mean, think upon the nature of the God into whose presence you're going to enter. That's what I mean. That what we do here is not frivolous thing. It's a, it's a deeply important, deeply um, special time that we have as God's people to enter into the presence of the one who fills everything, not contained in this place or any place. It's a reference to his being our creator and our sovereign God. That's the one we come before week after week. And if that is true, and this is the second part of what true worship is, if that is true, that this is the God that we enter uh, into his presence, then what, our, what ought our response to be? Isaiah tells us that in verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one to whom I will look upon with favor. The one that I will come near that is one who is marked by humility, which is the exact response and reaction to the God who is immense, the creator, sustainer, and sovereign of the universe. It is also the one to whom we appear as contrite in spirit. Contriteness means an acknowledgement of our sin before this one who is thrice holy, and it has it with it a trembling at his word. That when God speaks, we recognize it not as the word of men, but as the word of the ever-living God who speaks from heaven through his servants. We receive it as such with joy and with a trembling heart, knowing that as we receive it, as we hear it, God holds us accountable for all that we hear. Is that how you come to worship week after week? Is that how you be, begin to prepare your heart as we enter each Lord's Day into his presence? This is the picture of true worship. And the people who are coming back to Jerusalem, where worship will be restored in the temple eventually, need to be reminded that they were returning to the worship of this God. And these timeless truths are for us as well today. But they are easy, easy to forget easy to leave aside. I love, as we close this one section out, what Eric Alexander says in a sermon he preached. He said, paganism and ritualism, going back to verse 3 especially, are alike offensive to God. All of us would say paganism, the worship of idols, false gods, is, 
and abhorrent to God. It's offensive to him. But what he is saying here is that ritualism, mere outward worship, apart from the heart, is equally offensive to God. That he holds the two in the same level. That's amazing to think of, but it's true. Well, secondly, the people needed to be reminded of how God's people grow. So the growth of God's people is in verses 7 through 14 here. One of the great themes that we've noted throughout this section of Isaiah is the promise that the Lord will bless and will increase his people. That there will be, as we've seen so many times in Isaiah, there will be a gathering of the nations added to Israel, to Judah, added into his fold to include both Jew and Gentile alike. And we've seen throughout our study how that over and over again is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel to the nations as the book of Acts takes us through the beginning of that from Judah, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Imagine how the people would have felt upon their return to a city that was destroyed and empty. Generally, there were people who were still there, but overall it would have been considered a desolate and empty place. It would become, as Isaiah said, a haunt for jackals, for all kinds of animals, everything overgrown, everything unlike it ever was before. Imagine the picture that they, and the sense that they would have had. Well, the picture here in these verses, beginning in verse 7 through the first part of verse 14, is a picture, a beautiful picture of how the Lord will increase his people, how he will grow his people. Now, before we get to the verses themselves, they may seem strange to our ears as we read about Jerusalem being a mother who gives birth suddenly and before she is even in labor. As we read about the the people nurturing themselves and consoling themselves at the at the breast of Jerusalem as Jerusalem is this mother figure. I think we need to be reminded of how the New Testament understands this concept and idea of Jerusalem or Zion, which is a picture of God's people, ultimately a picture of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved of God, that this is how the New Testament understood this as well. And so if you want, you can turn to Galatians 4. These are just important verses to note. In Galatians 4, if you're turning there, if not, beginning in verse 21, just listen as I read these words from the Apostle Paul. He makes a very important connection and uh, sort of analogy here in these verses that I think are very important as we seek to understand these verses in Isaiah. Tell me, Galatians 4.21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, we know what he's talking about because Pastor Fisher just led us through the life of Abraham not so long ago. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. 
Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present earthly Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now listen, verse 26. But the Jerusalem which is above, the heavenly Jerusalem above, that which Revelation speaks of, that which Isaiah has spoken of, Zion above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now that's from Isaiah 54, a parallel passage to this passage, referring to Jerusalem as our mother. I think this idea is also borne out in Psalm 87, that great psalm based on the uh, upon which the hymn is based, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, a hymn we quoted throughout our study. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people, This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike shall say, All of my springs, all of my life are in you. Now, these passages, I believe, help us to understand what Isaiah here writes, what the Lord speaks in these verses. There is a picture of both numerical and spiritual growth here. We see in verses 7 through 9 the sudden supernatural numerical growth. There is birth. There are children being born before labor comes. This is who has heard such a thing. In fact, that's what he says in verse 8. Who has even heard such a thing? Can a nation possibly be born in a day and a land in one moment or a nation be brought forth in one moment? But here is the picture, the promise of great numerical growth for the people of God, his chosen and anointed ones. It is of the Lord. It is his work, supernatural. Now, as you read through this and you get the picture through verse 7 and 9 of this numerical growth, people say, well, when does this take place? Well, I think there is, as with all prophecy, a nearer fulfillment and a future fulfillment. I think one can certainly include the initial return to a city that is not populated, but suddenly becomes populated by the remnant the Lord brings back. You can look beyond that to the inclusion of others throughout the Old Testament history coming into the New Testament, where people continued to return to Jerusalem. But you can see it in the New Testament on the day of Pentecost, where suddenly, as it were, with the pouring out of the Spirit, suddenly 3,000 in one day are added to the church. And then after that, 4,000 and then 5,000 in a moment, in a day, added to the church. You can see it throughout all the great revivals of church history where God works powerfully from heaven by his spirit and draws many countless into the kingdom in one day, as it were. You can see it, as some do, as the ingathering of the great call of the elect at the time of the coming and just prior to the time of the coming of Christ, where the Bible seems to say that the Lord will gather in at that time a great harvest of both Jew and Gentile alike. And you can see it ultimately in the picture that we have in Revelation as the elect are gathered before the throne 
And as the son approaches the father with the elect behind him, here am I and the children you have given to me. It is a picture of the glorious numerical growth beyond numbering that the Lord will bring about. And that's what Isaiah speaks of in these verses. But he doesn't just speak of numerical growth. And nor do we as a church, though we are grateful in the Lord's blessing when he adds to our number. But what is even more important, we could say, beginning in verse 10 through verse 14, is the spiritual growth and nourishment of his people. That's the reason for the language of a mother nurturing her children at her breast, providing for them all that they have need of out of her abundance. It's the wonderful picture of the picture of peace coming and flowing like a river. That's why we read Ezekiel 47. That's why Psalm 46 says there's a river that comes from the throne of God. That's why Psalm 1 says the trees are planted by a river, a river that comes from the very throne of God that nourishes and strengthens his people. That's the picture here in these verses. He will comfort them. He will nourish them. He will strengthen them in all that they do. He will make them flourish according to verse 14, like the grass. Their hearts shall rejoice. They shall be comforted as a mother comforts her children. This is a wonderful picture of the church, of what the church should be, what it is called to be in the New Testament, in the fullness of its revelation that we see in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. I think personally, as I read these verses, you know what I think of? I think of what theologians call the, the means of God's grace. That is, what, what are the means by which we come to experience in its fullness our union with Christ? What are those means? You know them, I trust, the faithful preaching of his word, what we do every Lord's Day, morning and evening, the right administration of his sacraments, what we will do this evening as we gather again around the Lord's table, and the loving and faithful discipline of its members by Christ through his officers. That is as well a means of grace, a means of comforting, of nourishing, of feeding, of strengthening God's people. That's what this picture is. And and it even goes beyond that, I think. It, it speaks of the interaction we have as brothers and sisters in Christ and how we are literally nourished and strengthened through our fellowship with one another and our communion together in Christ as we enter into each other's lives, as we share one another's burdens. All of this is a picture of what God is doing through his church, the mother of us all, if you will, out of which we have been birthed through the preaching of the gospel and come to the fullness of life that is in Jesus Christ. Well, there's one more picture here, and it's the final one in the verses 14b through verse 24. Now, you will no doubt remember, I trust, the vision that this all began with in Isaiah chapter 6. When in the year King Uzziah died, the Lord or Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." 
Now, that picture set the stage for the rest of the book. And as we've studied it, I hope you've been able to see that what God's purpose and intent was, whether it be the previous chapter, Isaiah 5, where he talked about the vineyard that he planted Israel in the world as a vineyard to display his glory, or every chapter after that, where the focus seems to be upon the Lord and his glory. That because of their sin, his glory was veiled in the earth, and God was about to do something. He promised them through the servant to restore that glory upon the earth. That's the whole theme of this. So when we get to these verses, you'll notice, look with me in verse 18, that they shall see my glory. And then later in verses, I guess it's, it's hard to see this, verse 19, my fame and seen my glory. Verse 19, declare my glory. And then verse 23, the worship that he will receive from the people before his presence. The focus of this last section is upon the glory of God that fills the earth. God's own glory and the display of that glory is what the people needed to be reminded of as they returned to the land. That they were called and set apart as a people to display his glory and you remember, I hope, in chapter 42 of Isaiah, how jealous God was for his glory. In dealing with their idolatry and the worship of idols, when they called these idols their gods, remember that great verse in verse 8 of chapter 42. I am the Lord, he says, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Now, there are two sides to these verses Two sides that are very clear as you look through them. There is judgment and there is salvation or hope. Notice the judgment against idolatry. It's really the first part of this. That's what he's talking about in these verses. It begins in the second part of verse 14. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Who are his enemies? Who is the one to whom God will show his fury in verses 15 and 16? Who is the one against which his fire, the fire of his judgment, will come and his sword will slay? It is those, verse 17, who sanctify and who purify themselves to go into the gardens. The Lord never commanded his people to go into the gardens. These are idolatrous gardens. This is the imagery of paganism and the worship of idols. Following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh forbidden by the Lord and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know not only their works, but I know their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all the nations and tongues, and they shall come and they shall see my glory. I think the reference there is to the glory of God in his righteous judgment against the wicked. They shall come to see his glory as he pours out his wrath and fury against the wicked who are opposed to him. But secondly, in verses 19 and following, there is the picture of salvation and of hope. And it is a wonderful picture as well. I will set a sign, he says, among them. And from them, that is from those who are now my enemies, but whom I will call out from them, I will send them as survivors to the nations. The prophets, the evangelists of old who went to the nations and pronounced his salvation and his judgments. 
and he will go to all the nations. And this picture is the picture in Isaiah's day of what is the known world at that point. It wasn't as big as Isaiah understood, or as we understand in Isaiah's day. This is the, the picture, the parameters, if you will, of the whole known world. And so he says to the whole world, he says, I will display my fame and my glory. This is a picture of evangelism and missions of Jew and Gentile alike. I think its fulfillment is near as those would go out and people would come in even during those intervening years before the coming of Christ, but certainly would include a picture that from among the Gentiles of which this speaks so very clearly, he will send his people out. Some will go, as verse 21 seems to say, I will take from among my people, that is the Jewish people, those, those who will go out and be a praise to me and a witness to me among the Gentiles. And I will take from among the Gentiles those who will go out and reach the Jews as well. I think the picture is the fullness of everything that God has called and prepared uh, for his people. And so this picture of evangelism and missions is the picture here that we have. And notice verse 22, the promise that all of this will endure forever. The new heavens and the new earth, a picture of heaven itself and our eternal destiny, is a picture that will always remain before the Lord, and the offspring will remain, and our name will remain. This is a reference to the covenant promises of God, the very promises made to Abraham, the promise that Peter echoes in Acts chapter 2, the promise he said is not only for you, but it is for your descendants as well. To all who are far off among the Gentiles, whomever the Lord our God will call. What a wonderful and great end and purpose is given to us in verse 23. That all flesh shall come. And that the context, I think, has us understand all the elect, all the people whom God has called from Jew and Gentile alike shall come to worship before me. You turn to Revelation, you see the picture of that fulfilled in the coming of Christ at the last day. Then there's one final verse, verse 24. Isn't it strange, as it seems to me, that this section of Isaiah, which was given for the comfort of his people in chapters 40 through 66, should end with this verse and this picture I think it reminds us of what we looked at in the past several weeks. Our God is a God who makes distinctions. He does make distinctions between the righteous and the wicked. There is coming a day where he will separate between the goats and the sheep. God makes a distinction of heart and the hearts of men, their thoughts between those that are pleasing to him and those that are not. We've seen that in these very verses. And so Isaiah ends, strangely enough, with a warning. And it is a terrifying warning. Notice the picture in verse 24. Who are the they? The they in verse 24, the people of God whom he has called and who are gathered before his presence. You really see the fulfillment of this in Revelation. Whereas the beasts are destroyed and cast into the lake of fire, as Satan is cast in, as Babylon, the world system that is opposed to God, is judged. 
as the people there are laying as it will on the battlefield of Armageddon with the very birds of the air eating their corpses, there is a cry that goes up from the righteous of singing and praise to God that he has triumphed over his enemies. And that's exactly what we picture here. They shall go out and they shall look upon the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This is really a picture, as most of you know, of a place outside to the east of Jerusalem where there was an ever-burning fire that became a symbol and a picture of hell itself, that fire was never quenched. And it remained as a visible picture of God's judgment It would be the picture that Jesus would speak to the Pharisees in Mark 9. And he would use these very words from Isaiah 66. Whoever causes, he says, one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. Two times before, Isaiah said, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. I think it's a fitting conclusion as he wraps up this book to remind his people of these things and to remind us as well. And so as we close, three things, just to challenge you, questions to ask, that you might be encouraged as well as pilgrims moving towards your heavenly home, Number one, have you considered the proper and right worship of God? We need to be reminded of this week after week, that it is a heart engaged, a heart that comes before the Lord with all of its brokenness, with all of its fears and dreams and hopes, with all of its doubts and confusion before the one who is the immense, eternal, sovereign ruler of the universe the one who is able to do all that he pleases, that is the one before whom we come. Remember that week after week as we gather morning and evening in worship. This is our God, the one before whom we stand. And then remember how then you ought to approach him. Always humbly, never with arrogance, always with a contrite heart, sorry for your sins, looking to Christ for his forgiveness and the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ, with joy coming before his throne because of Christ. That is the proper worship of God, not with hearts separated from external actions, but hearts fully engaged in everything that we do before him. Second, remember how utterly dependent we are upon God. That really is the picture of the second portion that we looked at, the dependence we have upon God. The church is our mother. That's a picture that some have distorted in our day, but it's a biblical picture saying that through the church, 
and the means of grace, God feeds and nourishes his people. How important is the church to you? The body of Christ, the attending of worship week after week, faithfulness in those means of grace, prayer for one another, sharing one another's burdens. This is where our dependence is utterly upon God. And the picture is clear. It is God who feeds, God who nourishes, God who strengthens, not other things, not other uh, things that people might give themselves to, but God through the means that he's appointed. And then remember, finally, the hope that we have and the rejoicing that we are called to as followers and believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. His promises are true. They're referenced there at the end of the very passage we read. The Abrahamic promises, the blessings of God to us and to our offspring, the name that God has given us shall remain to the glory of his fame and praise. We can rejoice then as believers in what God has done for us. We can rejoice that we are not by his mercies among those who will suffer his wrath in verse 24. If you are here this morning outside of Christ, you can hear the truth of the gospel and the hope that is found only in Christ. And you can answer the call of Isaiah who says, come and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow because of the servant, the suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. How then shall we respond as we close out our study formally? There's one more next week. But formally, how shall we respond? The hymn writer, we've quoted it before, says it so well, John Newton. Savior, if of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all its boasted pomp and show. Solid joys, lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. And then the psalmist adds these words as we close. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let us pray. Our Father, as we have come through now all 66 chapters of this book, a picture of the fullness of your word itself, we have tasted and seen the joys of your people. We have come to know the blessings that are uniquely ours through Jesus Christ and the hope and encouragement that comes to us through him. We have also heard the dire warnings to those who would persist in their unbelief to those who would go in their own ways and trust in their own devices. Our Father, would you work among us as you see fit for the glory of your name, that you would strengthen your people here gathered, that you would call those to yourself who do not yet know you, nor have they bowed the knee to you, that you would remind us that you are a God who makes distinctions and on that great, th great day, there will be great distinctions made. May you work among us so that each one of us here this morning and all who hear my voice would hear the voice of the Lord through the Holy Spirit and would be found in Christ, who is our ever-living and everlasting Savior. And we pray this in his name.
Amen.